welcome to the Common Good Podcast, the podcast that showcases the very best of Glasgow Caledonian University and how the institution, its staff and its research benefits people and communities both at home and overseas. My name is Craig Telfer and I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Katrina Miller, a senior lecturer in the Department of Media and Journalism to discuss her upcoming book, Cult TV Heroines. Katrina, thank you very much for joining me today. Happy to be here. Big question to kick us off with. Tell me about Cult TV Heroines. What's it all about? Or is it just as it says in the tin? It's pretty much as it says on on the tin. Um, Absolutely. Cult TV is an idea that's been around in the academy for quite a long time, since at least least the 90s, if not earlier. And um, I wanted to look particularly at the portrayal of the the heroines in in cult TV because it's a it's not exclusively a fantasy science fiction sort of a a genre if we can call it a genre but the the heroines do seem to be particularly strong they've got good strong narratives they're interesting the characters go through lots of different movements and I certainly was a big fan of Buffy back in the day <laughs> and I always felt <laughs> she was a, a, a terrific role model and uh, so it was kind of partly stemming from, from, from that really just wanting to look a bit closer as to what was really going on mm-hmm. in those kind of those kind of shows. I didn't watch much Buffy the Vampire Slayer but I do remember the episode I think it's called Hush with the Gentleman Absolutely terrifying, even for a, a pre-watershed. I remember it was shown on BBC Two and watching it when I was a schoolboy and thinking, my goodness, this is, I, I sh-, even as a boy, I knew I shouldn't have been watching it. <laughs> that is a particularly terrifying um, episode because none of the characters can speak mm-hmm. in it. So everyone's voices get taken away and it's how they kind of manage to, to deal mm-hmm. with all of that. I, th- I think the interesting thing about Buffy is that often the, the episodes that had the most effect on, on people were not necessarily the ones that had the most fantasy in them. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone always talks about the episode where Buffy's mother dies and, you know, that it was was real in in the story and she doesn't come back and and that's it that's she's dead uh, and and dealing with the sort of grief that that sort of followed that that character's death and so on was a very real depiction of emotion and nothing to do with the, the fantasy world really so i think one of the things that interests me about those kind of shows is the way that it goes back and forth between uh, reality and fantasy and and one of the points i try i try and make in the book is that of course any kind of fiction actually does those two things Mm -hmm. so often people talk or you know they they say how how wonderful soap opera is because of its its realism and and certainly in the uk there is a tradition of realism uh the, the kitchen sink dramas from from the 60s but for for me i say i always think well it, it's just on a scale it's a sliding scale really as to you know okay okay coronation street doesn't have dragons in it but <laughs> you know just because something does have dragons in it doesn't necessarily mean that everything else is is complete fantasy as well this exploration of strong female characters how does this tie in with what you teach at the university crops up in in a few places i suppose the the main area w- is with our postgraduate program um, matv fiction writing yeah. so 
uh, working there in, in a, a model about what's called researching the TV fiction market, but it, it, it's about getting them to think about where their stories are likely to be commissioned and who's going to be interested. But we do, we do look at the sort of the, the sort of realist side of things so they they do quite a lot on on soap opera and they certainly learn to write for soap operas uh, just a little plug but quite a lot of <laughs> our um, <laughs> graduates are working for Hollyoaks and EastEnders and so, so they do they do get jobs on those soaps but the other side of television if, if you like is that cult tv and the fantasy science fiction side of things is also a big area for television and has been since yeah. you know back in the day back in the 60s so thinking about that kind of drama as well is is also useful so i'm always like pushing them a little bit to try and think about other ways of telling stories and and how to portray yeah, a strong female characters. It has become a bit of a cliche. It was a strong female character, mm -hmm. you know. But what does that mean? And you know, uh, yeah, there's <laughs> quite a lot more packed into that. <laughs> we mentioned Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but what other shows did you watch when you were writing the book? I watched far too much television altogether, <laughs> Craig. I have a lot of pals who think that my job is basically watching television and they're not they're not completely wrong about that it, it I mean I have to be honest and say is one of the big challenges of writing a book about television is you know writing about sort of even a film genre and each film is an hour and a half two hours yeah. and you start to write about the x-files for example and you've got <laughs> 11 seasons <laughs> with 22 episodes per season that's a lot of tv so yes I did watch a lot of TV, The X-Files, Buffy, The Avengers, Bewitched, going back to the 60s, okay. um, The Bionic Woman, Charmed, uh, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, Winona Earp, Star Trek, lots of Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> you put in place some rules for the shows that you could and couldn't write about. Can you tell me about that? Yes, the in order to try and cut things down to something that would be manageable, I did have a word count. <laughs> I couldn't go over for the publishers. Um, to cut that down, um, I did set up some rules for myself. So one of the, the main rule was that the heroine had to be at the centre of the story. It had to be her story. So that excluded ensemble pieces so star trek next generation has some great female characters in it farscape also there's really interesting characters in it including zan who's who's a plant you know <laughs> some really interesting strange uh, and interesting characters in it but essentially farscape is is really Crichton's story he's the he's the astronaut from earth and it's really his story following it through and despite there's an argument to be made for Star Trek being more of an ensemble piece, but at the end of the day, Captain Picard is the glue that holds that show together. Yeah. So really, and even some of the more other ones like um, Stargate Atlantis, Elizabeth Weir is a very strong character in that. But again, you know, the producer, the executive producers described Joe Flanagan as their star. So it's his story. So that, that, 
cut down quite a lot of shows that I might have spoken about, including Game of Thrones, actually, mm -hmm. which didn't really have a single female character at the centre of it. So all the shows, they mostly had their name in the title, like Jessica Jones, yeah. <laughs> for example, <laughs> kind of made it a bit easier uh, compared to, yeah, so, or, or, or it was very much built round that mm -hmm. single character. The, the only exception to those rules would be the first few shows that I looked at where it's a partnership mm -hmm. uh, between a man and a woman who, who I think I describe it somewhere in the book as a kind of entry for heroines uh, in, into television and cult mm -hmm. TV through being in a partnership. So that was The Avengers, um, Sapphire and Steel and The X-Files mm -hmm. uh, in that chapter. But yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. You have divided the book into different chapters, including male and female partners, warriors, chapter about witches. Why did you break it down into those sections? Well, I, I wanted to try and avoid having a sort of chronological approach to it because I did want to compare and contrast a little bit certain types of characters has, as they were done before and how they were done now. So right. I think probably the witches chapter is the one that, that kind of does that most... Uh, obviously because uh, you had Bewitched which was such a huge show in the 60s um, and being able to compare that with uh, Charmed and there's a very funny episode where uh, in Charmed where one of the sisters starts turning into Samantha from Bewitched so, so there's a kind of you know there's a kind of connection for them there so yeah so I wanted to sort of be able to compare and contrast a little bit more freely some older shows with some more recent ones and and often with interesting results, because really, controversially, not everyone would probably agree with me, but I think Emma Peel from The Avengers is actually a stronger character in many ways than Scully from right. The X-Files. I know. Why is that? Well, <laughs> she's, she's much more um, optimistic. She solves the crime so many times, uh, Emma Peel. This is, you know, she often finds the key pieces of evidence to solve the files. But the problem with Scully is... It always, when you start really looking at what, what's happening in the narrative, she's so often being pulled along in the wake of Mulder. And it's Mulder's quest to find out what happens to his sister. And yep. he wants to find that, you know, the truth is out there. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it's not really, she joins him in his quest. And there's also the issue that I do go into in a lot more detail in, in the book about motherhood and Scully and how that is used to sort of constrain her often and then the the ending of the the final episodes where she's magically suddenly pregnant with Mulder's child and that's the happy ending even even Gillian <laughs> Anderson wasn't really very happy about the way that ended up she's almost completely missing from that final episode bizarrely she just sort of disappears off and then she suddenly reappears and goes hey I'm pregnant and yay that's that's that sounds very absurd. I, I was a big fan of the Exiles, particularly about the first three or four series. I didn't watch it as much as it went on, but like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I remember the, the episode Squeeze and Tombs with the guy who could stretch his, his limbs and climb down chimneys to eat people's livers every terrifying. Years. Absolutely terrifying. I'm not kidding. I, I had nightmares for, for months. But even, even watching that, I, I found Scully a, a very interesting character. I think that Whereas Mulder was the, the fantasist from the two of them. He had the, the sort of the grandiose idea. She was more earthy and, and she 
tethered his ideas to, to science. I thought there was a, a good juxtaposition between the two characters and their relationship together. But she almost never gets to see the evidence that he sees. You know, she always arrives just a little bit too late or she, the evidence has disappeared or, you know, and, and she's never really, what is her quest in the end? It's to look mm. after William, the child that turns out not to be her child. Whoops, spoilers. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it, she, her quest is wrapped up in motherhood. Mm -hmm which you know is 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 fine but considering all the other aspects potential aspects of her character i think i think that was less convincing who are some of your favorite cult tv heroines well i i do have to mention diana rigg because yeah. she's Emma the, of the the book as well isn't she yeah well she she in the end she really had to be on the on the cover first of all because Emma Peel was just so cool mm -hmm. but also because when I got my PhD Diana Rigg herself was actually chancellor of Stirling University so she's the <laughs> one who actually doffed me on the head really? and conveyed the the PhD to me and so I do like to think that I got my PhD from Emma Peel <laughs> um but yeah, so Diana Rigg, definitely, Emma Peel, you know, she was cool, she was clever, she was physically active. One of the things I, I like very much about the Avengers is that she rescues herself a lot of the time. She never gets too upset by things, you know, that she's cool in temperament as well as, you know, kind of style. So she's she's definitely definitely up there for me. Um, I'd I'd say Buffy as well. You know the the ending of the series of Buffy. She's done it. She's won. You know she's saved the day. She's freed all the other slayers. So she's not just rescued herself. She's rescued an entire generation of young women. She's not that. There's a there's a writer who wrote a book in 1980 two called archetypal patterns in women's fiction and she says that she's writing about literature not television but or, or film but i do come back to it a lot she she said in that that the women heroes heroines they end up married mad or dead and it's <laughs> it's horrifying even in 2020 how often how often that is true Although they might not be actually married in, in you know, contemporary drama, they do get the guy, the Char yeah. Charmed sisters, they all get, you know, an angel, a, a Cupid, you know, they, they're mm -hmm. all coupled up by the end of it. But Buffy wasn't, she succeeded. She's not, you know, it's not about Angel or Spike anymore. You know, the, the vampires that she was, you know, romantically attached to, she's not mad, <laughs> you know, she's not dead. She's been dead a few times, but <laughs> now she's not dead. And she's, she's succeeded. And really at the time when the show finished, I thought, oh, that's fantastic. That's the first show where that's, you know, that's happened. And I was expecting a flood of dramas after that with heroines who didn't end up married, mad or dead. And it 
sadly just hasn't happened you know i i i'm there's some shows that haven't finished yet you know winona earp is still mm -hmm. on the go um star trek discovery is still on the go so may, maybe there are sabrina chilling adventures of sabrina is still on the go so so maybe some of these shows will will, will show us a different mm -hmm. route forward but i think one of the things that did sadden me in the book was that there weren't more <laughs> Mm -hmm. weren't more heroines and there weren't more fun, well fantastical thinking about what they could be and where they could go mm -hmm. uh, just to even imagine it seems to be yeah. quite quite hard so is that what makes a good heroine someone who perhaps kicks against perceived gender norms i i wouldn't put it that way actually because I, I don't i don't really like gender essentialism that sort of says because you have this biological sex it means you have to behave mm -hmm. in, in these kinds of ways because I see that very much as a kind of cultural thing or a social thing. I'm interested in stories where the heroines have agency or autonomy to make decisions for themselves and perhaps on behalf of others if they're in a leadership position that has an effect because so often you know, we, we do have the, well, if I, if I go back to the X-Files, you know, Scully being pulled along in the wake of Mulder, you know, he's the driving force there. You know, how can we have more heroines who, who do make those kind of decisions for themselves and live with the consequences? I think that's an important part of it. You know, you make a decision, you do what you think is right, and then you have to live with it and not put the blame onto other people or so on. So I, I, I want to see more stories like that uh, i think and even as i say in the fantasy mode where anything might be possible we still find that they're not as it turns out and and that heroines have have to be worried about who their love interest is and they spend a lot of time worried i mean i have you know over the years had many conversations about sex in the city which isn't a cult tv show in, in this context about whether or not it's a feminist show and at the end of the day i have to say for me it really isn't uh, they spend the entire six seasons talking about men <laughs> that doesn't that's not what emancipation looks like to me anyway in in that in that context. So. As a man who has watched Sex in the City 2 more times than he cares to admit, it's one of the worst <laughs> movies I've ever seen. I completely agree with you on, on, <laughs> on that point. Absolutely horrendous. But listen, you've, you brought up an interesting point that I was going to touch on. What do we mean by cult TV? And what's the difference between cult TV and popular TV? <laughs> the, the question of what is cult TV is the one that took me the longest to try, <laughs> try and answer. So I'll try and sort of sum, sum it up for you. Um, the short version is, is that really what marks out cult television from other kinds of media is the level of engagement of, okay. of the audience. It does come down really to the activity of the fans, which is intense. They have a very intense relationship with the television text to the extent where you might have fans of Star Trek who actually learn Klingon, which is a, a <laughs> fantasy language. Well, it, I know it is funny, but actually there's quite a good story about that, which is one, one of the women, a, a woman who learned Klingon ended up as an advisor about Klingon 
on Star Trek Discovery really? um, because they made the decision that they want, they had a lot of Klingon characters in the first season of Star Trek Discovery and they wanted to try and make it more realistic by having the Klingons speak Klingon mm-hmm. in, you know, certain, so, so she was employed by the show oh, to gosh. advise yeah. on the Klingons. So, you know, it's, you never know uh, <laughs> where it's going to take. But, um, yeah, so the fans, you know, they, they want to engage in cosplay, they might do fan fiction, they sort of rewrite stories, they might create art, they, they crafts, they, they make songs. They're really engaged in the world and with the characters at a level that even the most intense fans of, of uh, soap operas traditionally don't, although mm-hmm. that we are seeing some, some shifts there. So it, it is about the, the behavior of the audience, but what, what I was trying to unpick a little bit in the book was that there is a sort of virtuous cycle that's been created between the activity of the fans and, and their, their level of uh, attachment to the show and the business side of things. So they go, wow, those fans, they're really, they're really into this. That's a valuable commodity. Let's do more of that. Yeah. Um, so we ended up in sort of 2019, you know, 2018 Netflix, it was really noticeable that the shows that they had uh, mostly commissioned that year, a very high percentage of them were the sort of fantasy SF side of things where mm-hmm. they thought they find it easiest to kind of capture that sort of an audience. But the element that I sort of am particularly interested in for all that the business want to create those kind of shows, sometimes it just doesn't work and it falls flat and people don't want to engage with it in in that kind of way so I was interested in the kind of psychological elements that might draw fans to uh, engage in in those kind of worlds Mm -hmm. uh, and and what they're getting out of it which I think they do get a certain psychological savor out of it which I sort of look at from a a Jungian point of view where I'm looking at concepts like the transcendent function and active imagination so it's doing something that's allowing their unconscious to explore aspects of themselves with the text my goodness which kind of explains why some people watch star trek and go i'm obsessed and other mm-hmm. people watch it and go what is this nonsense <laughs> um because <laughs> there's plenty of both mm-hmm. uh, and and i don't as far as i can see i don't think anyone else had kind of offered that sort of perspective mm-hmm. on it before Sometimes we see fans lobbying uh, TV executives, uh, streaming service executives to get a show that's been cancelled recommissioned. If a fan can get a show recommissioned, does that give them a sense of entitlement that they can have a stake in the show and start influencing the creative process? Uh, Certainly some of them think so, but it's, it's often... It's a tricky, it's tricky territory for the, the showrunners and creators and writers to, to navigate. Because at the end of the day, they're the people who are delivering the show that, that mm-hmm. people love. And if you start pandering to fans too much and maybe some characters become unkillable or, or, or you, know, you can't have anything too bad that happens to them, you, you very quickly end up with very dull drama. Mm-hmm. So... I, I think a lot of the the more recent showrunners do run quite a tight ship on on that sort of a a, a stage, and certainly, um, the showrunner of Winona Earp has a very warm uh, and open relationship 
through social media with the fandom of the show who did help to bring it back for a fourth season after a hiatus. But she's she's really very strict with them and, 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 and tells them, you know, no, trust us, you know, we have made the show that you loved so far, you know, trust us to keep doing that. And she's sort of managed it very well. And um, other shows like The Hundred have, have fared less well, I think. It's, it, it's a delicate negotiation, but, mm. you know, the passion of the fans is a great thing, but it does need to be managed creatively. Mm-hmm. There was an element on social media as well who, who were unhappy about Jodie Whittaker's portrayal of the Doctor and Doctor Who. And you wrote about this in the prelude to your book. Can you, you talk a bit about Jodie Whittaker and Doctor Who? Well, there'd been a lot of discussion about Doctor Who uh, for many years, actually. I remember Dawn French at one point being suggested as a possible Doctor Who and Joanna Lumley as well, who did actually play a a version of Doctor Who in a a comic relief uh, sketch uh, a few years ago. I I think Doctor Who has has an interesting fan base. You know, there are those who have grown up with it since the black and white days of William Hartnell and have have stuck with it, who are obviously of a kind of different age to those who might have started watching it um, more recently. And yet it is a family show. It's not a show for adults. It's it's for adults and and children. And so it, it does have to keep reinventing itself. And it did seem time for the doctor not to be a white man and so I think it, it was the right time uh, to, to, to try something new. There certainly was, there was a hashtag not my doctor that went around on Twitter, there were some posts on Facebook and other social media that was very against it but at the end of the day most of that negativity was coming from the older generation and not the younger generation and I, I, I think the show producers and the BBC were were right to kind of stick to their stick to their guns on that. It'd be interesting to see where they go next uh, with it. I, I mean, just to give you another example, you know, I thought the first season in particular, of Star Trek Discovery, was very bold. You know, you've got an African American woman in the main role for the first time ever for mm-hmm. Star Trek. Um, she's a really interesting character in many many ways. I couldn't help noticing over the summer two new shows one which had come to air which was Picard so that's a blast from the past for the fans but it it was very successful and there will be more of Picard in the future the other show that has been just been announced is um new new frontiers i think something like that anyway um which is going to be starring Anson Mount as captain Christopher Pike who was a very popular character who turned up in season two of Star Trek Discovery. All of which is to say, we had this sort of step forward with uh, Sonica Martin-Green as, as uh, the, the, the character in Star Trek Discovery. What are the next two commissions? Two white males <laughs> in the main roles. So I, I'm sort of hoping that the Doctor Who team will will take another bold, courageous decision when when the time has come for Jodie Whitter, Whitaker to move on to, to something else. But I mean, she has she has been popular. Um, yeah, the younger that performance has been and, well received. 
viewing figures have not plummeted, so that suggests that the fans have made their peace with it, <laughs> at least for now. <laughs> Why do fans get so protective of their shows? We were talking about Doctor Who, Renona Earp. Where does a sense of ownership come from? For me, I would, I would take it back to the fact that the relationship for the fans with the text is, is really about themselves. It's, it's a form of projection so that they, element, characters in the show have, have picked up certain projections from, from the, the, the fans and it's, it's them dealing with aspects of themselves through the text. And so if the text doesn't go in the direction that they need it to, it, it, it is very emotional for them and they have to sort of re renegotiate their own relationship with with the text and with themselves so for me it, it it's it's about their own unconscious relationship with the text and that's why they want to work with it that's why they want to stay with it that's why they rewrite the stories in the way that they want them to go in fan fiction why they draw pictures why they do things that seem very obsessive from the outside but it but it is actually a form of, of therapy in a way I don't want to make that too strong a point mm -hmm. but they are they are dealing with it in, in what I would say is is a healthy way actually where you play with ideas and until you you get what you need for from them and then you might move on to something else but while you're in the middle of that it's it's difficult to to be objective about it I mean I, I would say um my PhD was about vampire films, but <laughs> I think I was looking at vampire films from a Jungian point of view. And I think really vampires are a representation of what it's like to live in a patriarchal world as, as, as a young woman. You know, these men are terribly attractive if you're heterosexual, are very attractive, but they can turn on you. And you don't know necessarily who it is who's going to turn out to be a bad guy and turn on you and suck the life out of you, <laughs> <laughs> turn you into a zombie. You know, I mean, it, it, it's a sort of fantastical version of a story that many women will be very all too familiar with. So to me, that's what the vampire kind of represent so but uh, you know there, there are many different interpretations of it but um so so it's that kind of engagement with the text that is allowing people to work through certain mm -hmm. projections reviews of the book katrina have been very positive so far and one of them described it as a timely exploration of the phenomenon of cult tv heroines why is it timely i think can't really get into the head of the reviewer too much there but well, why would they why would they suggest it would be timely i think there's there's a couple of elements to it really um it has been a while since anyone had uh, in the academy had written about cult tv or really looked at the concept of cult tv and tried to sort of reevaluate it a lot of the work in the academy had moved over to trying to chart what fans were actually doing with the text rather than looking at the 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 whole concept of cult tv so i, th I think it might even have been about 10 years since anyone had really right, well. done that and in the meantime the, the the amount and number of cult tv shows has really gone off the scale partly as i said because netflix you know have recognized that as a growth area for them so so there's the kind of that side of it but also i think you know 
are, maybe we're in an, an era of fourth wave feminism. I certainly think it's, you know, the post Weinstein, post hashtag me too. I think mm. people are suddenly becoming a little bit more aware of these things. People are uh, more aware of things like the Bechdel test, you know, it's just not enough just to have females in a, a, a show. Do they get to speak? Do they get to speak to each other? Do they get to speak to each other about something other than a man? You would be surprised, again, how few <laughs> films in particular would would kind of uh, fall into those kind of categories. So I, I think from that point of view, a, a deeper look at some very warmly embraced female characters. I loved Scully in the 90s as well, but when I take a, a more analytical look at her development over the course of the whole series, I, I sort of think, well, that, that was a missed opportunity, mm. really. Whereas maybe M, Emma Peel in the end from the 60s seems more optimistic about it. Or, or I'm looking at Buffy and going, you know, what a great ending to that show. Now there's going, oh, wait, who else? There isn't anyone else. Um, so I think, you know, people are becoming more aware of it. I have to say an awful lot of writing rooms are still not very diverse in all sorts of, sorts of ways. So Chris Carter, great writer. Uh, he was the showrunner of The yeah. X-Files. Maybe a few more women in the room would have given Scully a better ending. I, you know, I don't know. Emily Andras, who is the, the showrunner of Winona Earp, is still one of the few female showrunners of a major show. So, again, Work you to know, be done. Work to be done. Can these shows help empower women? I, I think so. I, I do think so. It's, it's, again, one of the roles of fantasy is to show us what might be possible. And people... Don't take them so seriously because, you know, it's fantasy and, you know, maybe it's not real. So we don't have to take it so seriously. But maybe that means we can play with ideas more. Maybe we can try things out and see what it might look like to have a female captain of a starship. Because then maybe it makes it easier to imagine what a female president would look like or yeah, more female CEOs or something, you know, it just, it helps us to imagine and to see things as they might be, not just as they are. So I always think that fantasy, far from being irrelevant, is the first step towards being able to imagine change. If it's not too off topic, you know, I think we've had an awful lot of shows and films showing us ecological catastrophe and apocalypses of all sorts of different types, I think we're quite good at imagining what big disaster is going to look like. I noticed that people are talking about the California fires, for example, yeah. saying it looks apocalyptic. I haven't yet seen very many shows that are taking us to what can we do about it now or what could it look like in the future? And, and, and I don't mean in a utopian sense, but it is, um, well, to sort of pull, pull it back to a cult TV show, although it doesn't have a heron at the centre of it, The Walking Dead has yeah. been going for 10 years now. And it is interesting that they have started to look, if, if the world we know is gone, what 
goes in its place? Is it inevitable that it has to be the same as what we've had? Or, or could we do things differently? Could we think about the world differently? Can we, can we build back better? Which is a phrase that has sort of cropped up oh, yeah. in, in the wake of, of COVID. You know, can we do it better, differently uh, since we've got that opportunity? So I, I, I want to see more shows and more fantasy dramas about how we save the environment, how we fix the environment, not just how how much damage we're doing to it along the way. Well, hopefully our Netflix executives listening and gets on the blower to you to, uh, to pick your brains for an idea. Uh, Katrina, there's something I've always wanted to ask a writer. How do you take the germ of the idea for a book and turn it into an actual physical copy? What's the journey like? How has the journey been for you? Very long. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it it it's yeah that's that's a difficult one I think I suppose if I'm if I'm perfectly honest the the starting point for me was was really that I loved all these shows mm -hmm. you know either growing up or or subsequently you know watching them and sort of loving them and 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 sometimes hating them as well and and just wanting them to to sort of be better or or, or stronger or, or, or sometimes getting, you know, the, the great endings like, like Buffy. Mm -hmm. And then just because that was sort of slightly separate from the, the, the kind of academic world. But when it, I came to do my PhD and, and uh, I was a huge fan of vampire films at the time <laughs> and spending a few years looking at that kind of, I realized I never wanted to see another vampire film because <laughs> I have seen Zoltan, Hound of Dracula, and nobody should have to have watched that. Um, <laughs> so I suppose, you know, perfectly honestly, it came from being a woman and watching these shows and, and kind of wanting better, wanting more, and then sort of thinking about that a little bit more from, from an academic um, point of view. Um, but also... Yeah, I suppose the, the Jungian psychology side of things is a much stronger part of the, the Media Academy now than it certainly was when I was doing my PhD. Mm -hmm. But I, I still think there are a lot of ideas that we can draw from Jung that are uh, interesting and worth exploring. The Media Academy overall has tended to historically draw from Freud and Lacan's uh, work as a depth psychology model. And uh, there's, there's a whole lot of reasons why that is, but which are not relevant for today. What's the writing process like? How do you find actually committing the words to paper, as it were? Again, that, that, that's quite, quite a tough one. And I, I will be brutally honest and say that I was struggling with that for a, a very long time. Part, partly it's balancing out the different parts of the, the job of being a lecturer. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you're, if you're lecturing... And uh, it's always easier to put the students first because, you know, they're there and they're human and they need you to do things. And, you know, that's an important aspect of, of the job. The breakthrough for me was actually discovering what, what they sort of call social writing retreats. So it sounds a bit counterintuitive, but, and we've been running them on the campus as well over the last couple of years. Everyone who needs to write gets together in a room and says, right, today we're going to write. We're not researching. We're not reading stuff. We're not looking things up. We're just writing today. And you have to say in the morning, okay, I think I, I'm going to do 500 words, 50 words, 15,000 words, whatever it is you think 
and nobody sort of you know takes you out and gives you a hard time if you don't meet the deadline but it, or, or or your target for the day but it's amazing just the process of thinking realistically what can i get done today yeah. what do i need to get done today and then articulating that out loud <laughs> to somebody else helps you to decide that that is what you're going to do today and most people in the room do do what they need to do in the day and it's 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 been amazingly successful for me as as a, a method of writing and it really kind of broke down the the walls and people have a lot of concerns and and worries about writing and you know at some point you just have to start <laughs> and, and do it and then you can go back and fix it and move yeah. it around and all that kind of stuff but you need something down in the page first so yeah that that was a real that was an absolute revelation for me just having that tiny bit of accountability to somebody else say you know this is what i need to do today and they're saying great do it and then you know we all sit there and type away and, and <laughs> come back at the end of the day so so i have missed that a little bit under covid but uh, some people do remote writing retreats on mm -hmm. twitter which work quite well too what are your hopes for cult tv heroines to sell lots of copies <laughs> <laughs> fair enough <laughs> <laughs> no i no i'm being cheeky i i i i would like people to read it because i think i think it's got something to say and i think fans won't find that i have destroyed their favorite shows by over analyzing them but I, I i've tried to kind of say the places where i think it's it's really you know the show's really working and why that's a positive thing and maybe some other areas where maybe not so much i mean we can talk about costume and makeup and the ability of many of these heroines to run in high-heeled shoes which <laughs> i think is a superpower all of its own um you know so just trying to look at some of the the ways in which as as i keep saying you know <clears throat> can we do better can we do better and and i think i think we can katrina that was absolutely brilliant to talk to you good luck with the book it's out next month and i hope it's a huge success and it makes you millions <laughs> thank you very much i'd also like to thank everyone for listening to today's show and i hope you join us again soon when we'll be talking to another member of staff from glasgow caledonian university in the meantime, please subscribe to this podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to us from, and leave us a review while you're at it. Until then, I've been Craig Telfer, and this has been The Common Good Podcast. Mm -hmm.